a lot of people in the industry know, there was sort of a SAM orbit. And the people who were in the SAM orbit were on FTX's side, but not from the perspective of saying, we actually think this is good policy. It was just, this is what Sam wants to get done. So you need to fall in line. And, and like Kristen mm. said, this to me was like mob behavior, right? It like rose very quickly to the level of personal threats. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We are joined by the executive director of Blockchain Association, Kristen Smith, and Jake Travinsky, the head of policy at Blockchain Association. Jake, Kristen, welcome to Empire. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Yeah, of course. All right, Jake, throwing this to you. Uh, you came in here, said last week, you were kind of calm, cool, and collected. You were able to get your thoughts together this weekend. Uh, or today you woke up, you're pissed off, you're angry. Um, I would love to just hear why you are coming into, like, what wh what about it is, is, is so maddening for you right now? I, I think it's just, um, well, I, I think a few things. The first is, uh, you know, it took a while, I think, last week for us to realize that this wasn't just Sam Bankman-Fried having an error in judgment you know, a good faith mistake or something like that, this clearly looks like a fraud. Uh, and, you know, not just a fraud on the users of FTX, but basically on everyone. I mean, Sam was lying left and right for months, maybe years. And the damage that he's done is, is incalculable. And that's from a policy perspective, but also just from an industry perspective. There's so many people out there, you know, the, the, the customers of FTX who've lost their money, the other companies that he screwed over I, it just the damage is is unbelievable and there's there's no reaction to that i think other than to be angry I, the other thing is i'm mad at us regulators i think they failed us I, you know th there's a question now right are, are we going to rush to pass new regulations in the us that's the exact opposite of what we need to do us regulation prevents this kind of conduct us regulated exchanges and custodians cannot trade on customer funds. There is no way that this could happen with a company like Kraken or Coinbase or Gemini. And, and in part, you know, FTX was not a U.S. exchange. It was a Bahamian exchange, but it sounds like it did have U.S. customers, right? I'm hearing from a lot of people that if you wanted to trade on FTX, you just needed a VPN. They were not really trying to screen out U.S. customers. And what that means is they should have been subject to all those same regulations that apply to U.S. firms. They should have been regulated by the SEC. They were offering tokenized stocks. But what was the SEC doing? Were they investigating FTX? Well, it seems like no. They were in secret talks with FTX to work out a deal giving them exemptive relief that would give them a regulatory advantage over U.S. firms. And, and the same thing for the CFTC. FTX was a derivatives exchange. If it was offering derivatives to U.S. retail, it should have been regulated by the CFTC. This is what happened to BitMEX. When BitMEX offered derivatives to U.S. persons, the CFTC prosecuted them as an unregistered futures commission merchant. The BitMEX executives were also prosecuted criminally. What was going on here? Was the CFTC investigating or prosecuting FTX? Well, no, they were considering a proposal by Sam to offer derivatives legally to U.S. retail participants. They published that proposal for public comment in March. And meanwhile, they're prosecuting U.S. firms, Coinbase and Kraken, for minor violations. These regulators were asleep at the wheel, and both of them are telling us they want more authority to regulate crypto. That makes me very angry. I'll stop there. <laughs> Kristen, yeah. <laughs> we love angry Jake. We yes. love the passion. Um yeah, no, listen, I'm I'm angry too, but I've been angry at Sam for six months. I've been angry since he showed up in Washington and was pushing this proposal to allow mom and pop to do derivatives trading here in the US. That didn't seem like the good opening salvo for the industry to me. Um I was mad at him for pushing through legislation that would have thrown DeFi under the bus entirely and not solved any of the longstanding clarity issues around securities, commodities, definitions. And so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been waking up every morning not fighting Gary Gensler or the U.S. Congress or anybody else. I've been fighting Sam Bankman-Fried. So for me, um, 
you know, my, my, I'm, I'm less angry because I've been angry for a while. I think, you know, the important thing now is we have to figure out a path forward for the industry and, you know, probably not all of us are going to make it right. Um, but a lot of us are going to make it. And so what we need to do is like, I, I see sort of in two phases between now and the end of the year, um, it is our highest and best use here to stop any legislative activity from moving forward. I think it's really important that we learn from what, everything that Sam did before allowing Congress or regulators or anyone else to move forward with, with actions that impact the rest of the industry. They should be focused exclusively on the bad actors at FTX and looking at what happened there and using existing laws to go after them because it, it, it seems fairly apparent that there's plenty of violations of existing law that happened. Um, but then going forward, we really need to double down in Washington as an industry. Um, I think that we have made a lot of traction this fall um, in trying to distinguish how centralized entities work versus DeFi. I think that's going to be our number one education priority next year. Um, and then we're going to need to go through and work with regulators. And yes, there might be some additional legislative items, but I think it's going to be in our best interest to take our time learn from what happened and make sure that there isn't a quick overreaction. And so, um, you know, we've definitely got our work cut out of out for us, but, you know, I, I think we're in a good spot. Um, I, I the, my blood boils every time I see a headline that talks about how Sam was the only one doing work in Washington. Uh, that's not true. There have, you know, blockchain association has been around for over four years. Coin center has been around twice that long. Uh, we've got the DeFi Education Fund um, and others that are really doing great work on the ground. And we've got individual companies who have invested in teams here in Washington. So there is an army of people here uh, willing to clean up the mess that Sam has left behind. And so, you know, we're going to have to get organized. Um, well, we are organized, but continue to stay organized um, and stay focused. And, um, you know, we'll clean up this mess and move forward. That's that's the only thing we can do in a situation like this. Yeah. Oh, all right, lot to dig in there. Um, one, I think I want to highlight how present Sam was in, in DC and, and dig into that actually for a second. Uh, it, as a non-DC person, as an outsider, it, it, it felt like there's no there's no CEO. It felt like not even just in crypto, but take any industry. Like it felt like there's no CEO who is personally lobbying uh, folks in DC to this extent as much as Sam was. And it felt like policymakers and staff really welcomed him. Um, he had a lot of people tricked, right? You know, he's this big, successful person, um, big personality as well. And it seemed like he used that to kind of usher in this bill as well. So I, I'd love to maybe, Kristen, hear you talk about just like how active was Sam and like how, yeah, how, how active was Sam in, in, in D.C. these last several months? It seems like as an outsider, he was more active than anyone. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I've i worked in Washington for 22 years now, and I have never seen uh, any executive in any industry spend as much time in Washington as Sam. Um, and, um, you know, most CEOs will come in because they testify. Maybe they come in for a day to do some key meetings uh, and then they leave. Um, most CEOs are running their businesses um, and they they have teams of people in Washington that that manage this on their behalf. Um, Sam was the most aggressive I've ever seen. He was meeting with regulators. He was meeting with members of Congress, but he would also meet with the staff, right? He would go out and have beers with them, like as if he was, you know, sort of their friend. And, you know, every day I would be getting, you know, reports of Sam did this, Sam did that. And, um, I mean, he, he was in incredibly aggressive, um, incredibly charming, incredibly well-liked. Um, I mean, I think the sentiment obviously has, has changed. I think a lot of people are feeling... Uh, very betrayed, um, you know, people within government are feeling very betrayed by by what he did. Um, you know, he sort of showed up and he was telling the story that they wanted to hear that there should be more regulation. And, you know, here was, all, you know, it's complicated, but here's the answers on how to do that. And, um, you know, I, th I think um, it's left a lot of people burned. Um, and, and, you know, at least it, if there is a silver lining, it's sort of, you know, sort of forced everyone to step back and take a pause, at least on the current efforts. Uh, like the, the the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. So, um, but yeah, no, this this was highly highly unusual for a CEO to be this this personally active in Washington. When did it become apparent to you guys that 
his actions were not beneficial to the industry? I think, well, yeah, maybe you go, Jake. For me, it well, was last March or April. Yeah, I mean, I think it might have been even a little later than that because, you know, I mentioned earlier that FTX had this proposal to offer derivatives to U.S. retail. And at the time, you know, we all praised the CFTC for being forward thinking, right, for being willing to consider a novel proposal like this. And I think that's still true. Um, and But at the time, right, we also thought that FTX was an extremely high quality, uh, you know, resilient, stable, well, you know, well-functioning exchange. And I remember when there was a hearing back then, um, testimony in front of, I think it was the, uh, it was either the Senate or House Agriculture Committee to talk about this proposal. And um, it was Sam testifying alongside these executives from the traditional futures exchanges. And we were all on Sam's side, right? We were looking at those executives thinking, this is the epitome of what's wrong with traditional finance, these rent-seeking gatekeepers. And good for Sam being the one trying to cut through these, you know, these intermediaries. And I think it wasn't until he started lobbying for the DCCPA, right? This bill that would give the CFTC jurisdiction over crypto spot markets, while at the same time potentially um, you know, creating serious problems for DeFi, right? Maybe subjecting DeFi to the same rules as a centralized exchange, which is totally unworkable. I think it was then that we realized this person is not here to help the industry move forward. He's here to help mm -hmm. himself and his exchange move forward at the expense of everybody else. And that had to have been, you know, at least three or four months ago. And I look, I think one thing here is, um, Many of us were not public about that. And I think, you know, maybe we were intimidated by his influence or by his uh, by his image. I mean, he still was sort of viewed as as the golden child, uh, you know, both in the community, but also by policymakers. And we didn't want to you know, come out necessarily attacking him aggressively, even though we thought that the positions uh, he was taking were wrong. Um, so, you know, definitely that was um, maybe a lesson for us about uh, about our own responsibility to call out these red flags and push back harder yeah. when we see conduct like this. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting you say that, right? There's a lot of um, like Monday morning quarterbacking going on right now, and there's also a lot of just uh, people looking back at like the signs, right? Of like what 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 was there. I I mean, I don't know much about how DC really operates. I worked in Senator Wyden's office uh, on the Hill for I interned in Wyden's office, and like have have some uh, come from like a little bit of a political family as well. But like there weren't the the thing that became apparent to me. I was like, why is he pushing this so hard, right? This is occurring in a, yeah. in a mid election year, which is typically the lightest time period on, on passing bills because members, right, are focused on the reelection. So like that was a little bit of a red flag, but I, you know, it wasn't enough, I guess. So that was a red flag. The, the other red flag was um, the donations to members. I'm curious. I'm curious if this was a red flag. Like there, there are all these, like, I, I think smaller yeah. things that started to add up, right? Yeah, no, well, I, I can tell you the first red flag for me is, you know, FTX sort of shows up in Washington and hires a couple people to work on the issues here. And we all, you know, sat down with the FTX government relations team and had lunch and like, hey, let's work together. Great. Um, you know, did a dinner with some folks at FTX one night. And, you know, Blockchain Association is a trade association. We have 105 member companies who join the association because they believe it's important for the industry to first work together or commit to working together and then figure out together what those policy positions should be. What bothered me about FTX is they came in and said, here's the solution. And that solution was very much tailored to the licenses that they had um, and the way that they were structured. And you get on board with our solution. And I said, no, 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 like we need to pause and find something that works for all of the exchanges, for all of the participants. Why don't you join Blockchain Association and work on that with us? Or if not, let's just at least very, very least work informally together. Um, and they they were not team players. Like this is, this is um, I know in, in the marketplace, you compete against your competitors, but in Washington, if you want to get policy done, you have to do it as a group. Otherwise, mm. the industry gets divided and things happen. That was sort of my first red flag. I think the second red flag was over the summer when I realized the extent to which his campaign contributions were going to like leadership packs, like for Pelosi and Schumer. 
Um, and my understanding that he was meeting with McConnell and hosting breakfast and on the phone with him. And, you know, all of this information was coming my way. And that's when I realized I was like, Sam's trying to get this DCCPA done this year. You don't, you know, try to grease the wheels of leadership with, um, with campaign contributions if you're not trying to get something done. And then the next, I think, sort of shoot a drop was Jake's tweet thread around the time. And I don't know, Jake, if you want to share the reaction we had when you put out your five points on the DCCPA, but... Yeah, sure. So there was a hearing on the bill in mid-September, and right after the hearing, we put out our views on the bill, right? And look, we we generally, at the time, liked the overall idea of the bill, which was subject centralized custodial exchanges to some reasonable regulatory regime in the U.S. And so we said, look, overall, this is a good bill, but it has some problems. And we flagged a, a series of issues um, you know, related to the definition of a digital commodity, the impact on DeFi, and a few other things. And the reaction from from the FTX team was was like we had you know run over their dog or something like that. They were furious <laughs> that we had even voiced concerns about the bill. I mean, and, and this is in the context of us saying this is a good bill and we want to work to improve it. They Jake, what, what, is fear, even... what does FTX being furious mean? Like, were they calling you? Are they saying how how the hell? Like, why the hell would you do this? Are they texting you? Are they like? What I don't are know, they, Kristen, what, how much you want to tell about that? Yeah, but... I mean, I'll say I got. Uh, you know, the, so the funny thing is, like, outside of a couple meetings with the FTX team, up until last month, we hadn't actually met with Sam in person, uh, despite his, you know, extensive lobbying on these issues. But yeah, we got pushback via signal chats, we got phone calls, we got calls from intermediaries who said, if you don't let this bill get through this year, Sam is going to call all of your members and make sure that you don't have a job next year. Um, like crazy, like threats that like this had to get done now and calls from, you know, people in finance that run giant funds who were convinced that this was the solution. And listen, again, as Jake said, we're not opposed to better regulation of centralized exchanges. I think the problem we had is our discussions with the committee staff on issues around DeFi, the Bank Secrecy Act and some of these other issues were hit with resistance with with all of our conversations. You know, they would listen to us, hear us out, but at the end of the day, they weren't making any of the substantive changes. We needed to get comfortable with the bill. And so hmm. we felt like we needed to be in a, you know, like we ended up having to push back. And um, and yeah, that very much seemed to anger Sam um, and the rest of his team. Hmm. It seems like where this ended up is, I mean, Jake, Hats off to you for for pushing back and, and sharing that tweet thread there. It seemed like where where FTX kind of ended up is you had like Uniswap and and Coinbase and Kraken and Ave and and Blockchain Association and D, and, and all these great folks lobbying for the industry and doing things that yeah might have been good for their companies but really things that were good for the industry. And then FTX basically found themselves on the wrong side of the fight. It it, it seems like is that like was anyone in the industry? Uh, it seems like you had all these companies and the associations like together, and then you had FTX over here on the other side. Was any was anyone else on FTX's side here? Or maybe that's a mischaracterization of it. No, I don't think it's a mischaracterization. I mean, as, as you know, a lot of people in the industry know, there was sort of a SAM orbit. And the people who were in the SAM orbit were on FTX's side, but not from the perspective of saying, we actually think this is good policy. It was just, this is what Sam wants to get done. So you need to fall in line. And, and like Kristen mm -hmm. said, this to me was like mob behavior, right? It like rose very quickly to the level of personal threats, um, which again, should have been a red flag for us that maybe we should have you know talked about more um, publicly. But I, you know, I think anyone who was looking at the policy was saying, this isn't the right way forward. Let's you know slow this down, be careful and thoughtful and do this right as opposed to just ramming it through. And I, I think the thing that's most confusing to me is given what we know now about the state of the balance sheet and the business at FTX, I don't understand what Sam was doing. I, I, it does not make any sense to me why he would have thought that this strategy, focusing on on getting this regulation done, was going to solve his problem, was going to you know close the hole in the business. Uh, maybe it was just you know sort of a Madoff move, which is the closer he is to politicians, the more he looks like he's you know the shining beacon of regulatory compliance. The longer he can get away with this without being investigated, and maybe he did pull the wool over the eyes of the U.S. regulators. But that just I, I'm I'm really confused as to why he. Was yeah, I yeah. so I've had two just like 
types of thought on this. Well, maybe three. Before the news with CZ, um, you know, potentially bailing out Sam, I just thought this was Sam trying to get a monopoly for FTX US or as close to a monopoly as he could get, particularly for crypto derivatives, which of, you know, for that, which he needed the spot regulation. Then when the CZ announcement came, I thought, oh gosh, there was a giant hole related to Terra Luna and Three Arrows Capital. And Sam saw getting this bill done as a way out of that because that would, you know, give him the monopoly and he would be able to backfill and solve his problem. Um, but now I just think Sam's like, Sam and Caroline are Bonnie and Clyde. Like they're, they're like, I think they're just, I think this is like every, every indication I have is that this might've been like premeditated and not an effort. I mean, I don't know that, but I get yeah. a lot of information all day long. And, um, yeah, now I just think they're just crooks. And it, I think it's what Jake said, like it's the closer you are, uh, the more you can get away with because people trust you and they're they're not yeah. looking at you. If 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 I had to speculate, and I, I don't really know anything here, but if I had to speculate, um, this the master plan included two. There were two things missing from the master plan. One was FTX having a stable coin, and two was prohibiting DeFi uh, to ban competition. And once that was done, there's, I mean, there's no telling how big this could have gotten, right? So, I and I think I think. Sam knew that obviously Sam knew that there was a big hole, a five to $10 billion hole. And I think the stable coin probably would have plugged that hole. So that was, that's my, I mean, who knows, basically thank, thank God that FTX wasn't able to roll out a stable coin. So um, I'm curious, Kristen, how, uh, how much do the political donations matter here? Like was Sam able to do all of this because he was don he was the what largest or second largest donor to the Democratic Party? Yeah, listen, I mean, I think, um, you know, he he was at a different level. Um, the, you know, when Kristen Smith gives a couple thousand dollars to a congressperson, the benefit of that is it allows me to build a relationship with that person. Um, when Sam gives millions of dollars to a super PAC that then plays at a race, like that's a little bit of a different level, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've built a really good relationship with somebody um, when you're donating at that level. So yeah, I mean, listen, members of Congress, these races are really expensive and they have to raise a lot of money. And, you know, they are looking to engage in areas that will help them, you know, raise that money. Um, you know, again, it's not a quid pro quo, but it's, you know, an effort to build relationships. And, um, you know, Sam was great at doing that, right? He gave a lot of money, but, um, you know, he also showed up and, um, um, you know, was in the room and really like talking to people and teaching them about this. So, you know, I think it, it's a factor, but a lot of it is also just Sam personally being there and in the room. Yeah. There's some, there's some things that maybe fringe on the get a little conspiratorial here, I would say. So I don't want to I don't want to go too too deep down that rabbit hole. But I will say, like, Jake, you brought up in, in your kind of opening statement here about just, you know, how, like the SEC, right? Like the SEC is somehow somewhere, somehow at, at fault here. Uh, and, and, and really, either they were just asleep at the wheel or, or it goes deeper. I don't really know. But how did the SEC miss this? And was much, like does it go deeper than this i mean caroline I, there's like the caroline's dad was gary gensler's boss at mit something like that there's obviously the massive amount of capital um at play here like what jake where where do you fall out on this yeah i um look i i think we don't know is is the short answer um, there's definitely a lot of uh, what I would describe as innuendo being thrown around, right? And often this is how these conspiracy theories uh, get generated. It's like two people worked at the same place at some time. Therefore, they must have had some master plan <laughs> that, you know, lasted many years after they were working together. And that explains the whole thing. And I'm, I'm hesitant to sort of fall down that rabbit hole. Um, that said, I, you know, I think we need to fully understand what happened here. And that includes not just investigating FTX, but it also means investigating the investigators. And, you know, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I think it's just, it's something we have to get to the bottom of. Yeah. I guess SEC did miss Madoff. They looked into Madoff many times and they did miss Madoff many times. So. Yeah. And we had, well, also... you know, oh, God. <laughs> no, well, I was going to say that's, that's, <laughs> this is like another funny story. Like, Regulators didn't expose what happened with FTX. It wasn't international regulators. It was a combination yeah. of journalism 
and blockchain analytics and you know people on crypto twitter trying to trace the trail right it's this in some ways was like a self uh, you know kind of community policed uh effort here i mean obviously it was you know you could argue maybe late or maybe early depending on you know how big this could have gotten but um it's uh, a lot of damage was done before anybody figured it out but um but ultimately it came to light because you know coindesk and journalism and um that that, that I think is an interesting um, outcome for, you know, something that that is regulated, right? Like there is some regulation overseas and we do have regulators here that that know the company and we're working with the company. So, um, yeah, uh, I think it was Elizabeth Warren who, who posted something, something along the lines of like, we basically need better. We need better re- regulation here. And and I think it was Brian Armstrong who responded her on, to her on Twitter saying, actually, it was the the unclear regulations, yeah, we wel- we welcome regulations, but it was the unclear regulations that actually pushed a lot of users offshore into these kind of shadier exchanges like FTX. I re- obviously, you know, got a lot of likes, but I'm just curious when you, I'm just curious of the impact of something like that. And I'm like, does a, do these politicians and these and these regulators do they actually understand what Brian is saying there? Are they are they taking it in, or are they just like it? You know, it's ships passing in the night here. I don't know. I mean, they should take it in, right? I think it's absolutely true. And I think it's, you know, I guess two things. The first is there is no U.S. regulation that is going to change what a non-U.S. firm can or will do because they're not subject to that regulation, right? So when Elizabeth Warren comes out and says, we need to regulate more, I think it's really important to consider, well, what regulation actually would have changed things here, given that we already have many regulations on the books here in the U.S. that would stop something like this from happening. But I think that the second thing is, um, I think at this moment, regulators are more concerned about how they've been perceived, right? I would guess that they are also sort of scrambling to figure out how did we miss this? And I don't think they're going to be particularly receptive to arguments like that, but policymakers need to be because mm. because the main impact of lack of regulatory clarity here in the US is in the scope of this fraud, not necessarily the fact that it happened, but the scope of it. Sam would not have been able to bring in so many billions of dollars if not for the fact that U.S. firms that would never do something like this, that could never do something like this, were not able to offer alternative products. And that's what made this fraud not happen, but what made it so big uh, to the point where, where it was. Yeah. Kristen, when you meet with folks this week and the rest of this year, that this is obviously going to be the probably the biggest biggest issue that you're talking about. What is your response to them when they say, oh, well, regulate... Better, reg- better crypto regulation could have solved this. What's your solution to that? Or what's your response to that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, my response to it is let's look and see what happened and map out the bad activities to see whether if this were in the U.S., current regulation would have already addressed this or not. Um, listen, I think the regulations that we have today that centralized exchanges have to comply with, um, you know, money transmitter licenses at the state level, et cetera, you know, it's not the most efficient, best way. I think there's probably better ways we can do it. But I think we really need to like dig in because prior to, you know, the FTX blowing up, everybody was kind of thinking about this really in a vacuum and what are the problems. And, you know, even having, um, you know, sort of a market regulator at the CFTC, for example, that's, you know, overseeing and surveilling the markets, you know, that may or may not have stopped this. I mean, perhaps the the disclosure of, um, you know, conflicts of interest might have, but given the way that FTX operated, like, I'm not entirely sure that they would have been forthcoming and, um, you know, with everything that they were doing. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's a really interesting, you know, sort of public policy challenge. I think it's one that, you know, if, if we, you know, continue to stay focused and do our job right, um, you know, we'll be able to have these productive um, conversations. But right now, I think we need to bring the temperature down. Like everybody's very heated right now. Regulators are very heated. Um, obviously like people who've lost like their life savings are like understandably very upset. And so I'm excited though, specifically this week because blockchain association is having its first annual policy summit. We have all of our members coming in. Uh, we're going to be able to have conversations to see where regulators and lawmakers are at, and then to break out as an industry and figure out and forge a path forward. Um, 
you know, I, I do think this is a setback, but this is not the end of the road. Um, but we're, we're going to have to, you know, double down on education, um, building more relationships and staying focused. And, and, you know, I think we can get to a good outcome, but it's something that, you know, we're not going to be able to take a day off. Like we need to every day be watching what's going on, making sure we're responding as quick as we can when new things come up. And then, you know, trying to take the reins of this process and drive really good policy forward. Are you, uh, are either of you worried that regulators are going to jump to conclusions here uh, and, and, and take action when maybe they need to hear the testimonies and uh, hear, basically just get more info first? I, I'm pretty confident that people are realizing they need to, to really look into this first. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think um, enforcement actions in particular take time. I think criminal charges take time. Like th- there's a process there. Um, I have a little bit of concern that Congress might try to do something quickly, but I think given that Sam was the driver of the closest bill being done, that's giving lawmakers a lot of pause where they're trying to kind of reassess and figure out what happened. I mean, remember just like those of us in the crypto community who feel burned, those policymakers, those lawmakers that trusted Sam, I think also feel burned. And so, um, you know, I think that that gives us time to, you know, start fresh with the new Congress, um, you know, kind of go back to square one and factor in what's learned. But but yeah, no, we're watching very closely just in case yeah. that, no, that, that, yeah. is, that that path doesn't happen. We're, I mean, you, you would know, think we're, we're ready to go. Um, yeah, I mean, you would think that I mean, we're in lame duck now, right? So like, you would think that this wouldn't be iced out till next year. My concern is just that, you know, you have a you have a, I feel like Congress always feels very compelled to act when there's a crisis. And yeah, I, they don't normally act this quickly, though, true, it would have to true. be a pretty big, like economy collapsing crisis for them to do something yeah. this quickly. I, I would say, though, lame ducks are when a lot of things happen, right? Because you've got must pass bills. And you can, you know, attach other things to those bills. And so, you know, there is a pathway where the DCCPA could, could, you know, if all of, if, if the House and Senate Agriculture Committee all agreed, they could attach it to the National Defense Authorization Act or an omnibus or something like that. So that, that does exist. But I think there's enough pause right now that, um, you know, people are trying to just take stock of where we're at and reflect and that, that should be able to run out the clock so that we can start again fresh next year. But if not... We have amendments ready to go. Um, we have grassroots websites ready to go that will help, you know, get get the community to be able to weigh in with their members. Like, you know, we've, we've got all of the kind of backup steps in place, um, but, but I don't think it's going to lead nice. to a markup or get attached to a bill. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing some some uh, signs, at least from the Biden administration to that point. And just this morning, uh, Secretary Yellen, who I think is probably the most important uh, official in the administration, you know, outside the White House, um, to speak on this issue, she gave a statement saying that this, you know, reinforces the need for careful regulation. Keyword being careful. Um, I think, you know, yes, this will put a focus on the need to come up with some kind of regulatory regime. I think we've all sort of thought for a long time that uh, that it's appropriate for us to, to come up with something. But um, but I do think that that, you know, we'll do it in an, an intelligent, thoughtful, careful way, as opposed to just ramming something through in the next couple of months. It's definitely a moment of high risk. It always is in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. Um, that is sometimes when we see rash action. Uh, and usually that that means overreaching. Um, but I'm pretty confident that that's not going to happen in the next couple of months. And as Kristen said, this is going to be our sole focus, um, you know, to make sure that we don't make a, we don't follow up this fraud with a policy error that will compound the problem. Yeah. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. 
USDC has grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you want to learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on Circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to Circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. Jake, I cut you off 20 minutes ago when you were talking about the kind of five points in the thread that you wrote about the DCCPA. Can you just give an overview? Can you just give an overview of the bill so that folks know what, what what's kind of on the table here? Yeah, sure. So um, as we stand now, U.S. exchanges that have spot markets, meaning trading of the actual digital assets, are not comprehensively regulated on a federal level. They are regulated in many different ways. As Kristen said, they have to get money transmission licenses in the states. They're registered with FinCEN as money transmitters at the federal level for anti-money laundering purposes, all sorts of other types of regulations like that, consumer protection laws, et cetera. But no comprehensive registration regime of the sort that you have for securities exchanges with the SEC or derivatives exchanges with the CFTC. And that's actually how it is for other non-security commodities, right? Gold markets are not comprehensively regulated, wheat markets, et cetera. And the question is, should we have some kind of registration regime for spot crypto markets? And I think, again, the answer sort of is, yes, we should. Uh, and the question then becomes, what does that look like? Who is the right regulator? And the DCCPA is a bill that says the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, is the right regulator for crypto spot markets. And what it does is it has definitions of what are called digital commodity platforms, four different types of them, brokers, dealers, trading facilities and custodians. And it says if there is a firm engaged in the activity of one of those types of platforms, they have to register with the CFTC and then they have to follow certain rules and requirements that will be set out by the CFTC according to certain principles and standards that are included in the bill. Mm. All of that actually makes pretty good sense. Um, there's just some, some you know devil in the detail type problems with the bill. One of which being, it doesn't clarify which assets fall within the CFTC's jurisdiction under the definition of a quote-unquote digital commodity. It has an exclusion under that definition that just says securities are not digital commodities, which means the SEC would continue to have the same authority they have now to come out and say, Every asset we see is a security, therefore we regulate them, not the CFTC. And that's the key issue that we have to clarify in U.S. regulation. The bill doesn't do that. It also has very expansive definitions of digital commodity platforms in a way that could capture DeFi, not only the protocols themselves, but also any number of DeFi market participants, right? The liquidity providers, the governance token holders and voters, the people who are running, uh, you know, web apps or front end user interfaces or wallets that have DEX functionality built in, right? All of this is, is um, you know, potentially captured, even though it shouldn't be under the bill uh, and a few other issues like that. So that's what we've been working to, to try to figure out overall. Having a regime like that could make sense. I think given the uncertainty about FTX, I'm very hesitant at this moment to say that the CFTC has earned the right to get that authority. Um, but that's just something that we're going to have to hash out, I, I think, you know, over the next year in 2023. Hmm. Do I, so do I, I just want to almost repeat it back to you and make sure I, I, that I actually understand it here, which is that it seems like this bill was not born out of sin, right? It seems like this was aimed to cover crypto intermediaries and if the and if the DCCPA was constrained to just crypto intermediaries uh, and oversight of crypto intermediaries cent, cent, excuse me centralized crypto intermediaries that would be okay like that's kind of a normal thing in under other industries the uh, first problem lies in the fact that this kind of got extended to defi and then there's a second thing which I didn't understand as well until you just explained it here Jake which is that this kind of provides the SEC with veto power over wh whether assets that 
aren't Bitcoin and ETH. So any any crypto that's not Bitcoin and ETH, uh, it gives the SEC veto power over whether those assets are digital commodities or securities. Do I? Those are the two main issues here. Yeah, yeah I mean, and I would. Oh, go ahead, Kristen. Well, I would also add from a strategic. Yeah, the, well, the, there's more issues, but from a strategic perspective, figuring out what's a security or commodity is like our biggest problem that we proactively need to have solved. And I think what bothered me about this bill is it didn't really do anything to address our core problem. So we were trading all of this regulation mm. of everything, including DeFi, but even if it had just been for centralized regulation, the fact that we were moving forward with that without getting a solution to what's a security or what's a commodity, to me was a complete missed opportunity and strayed from the strategy that we've had as an industry for the past several years. Um, but yeah. anyway, I'll let Jake go back to the other problems. Yeah, no, I mean, and there were, you know, a lot of, of other issues. Those two, I think, are the biggest ones. But just to give you a few other examples, um, it's possible the bill turns venture capital firms into regulated commodity pool operators, which doesn't make any sense at all. Um, the bill... Uh, it gave the CFTC extraterritorial jurisdiction so that it could regulate transactions that took place entirely outside of the United States, which I think is just as a foreign policy matter is a mistake because there are other countries that are pursuing their own separate approaches. And we need to sync those up as opposed to, you know, be the U.S. world police and, and try to impose our will on, on everyone else. Um, the bill uh, added every type of digital commodity platform to the Bank Secrecy Act meaning all of them would have to do customer due diligence and KYC under the anti-money laundering laws, which again, in the DeFi context, just doesn't make any sense at all. And there's not a, a really good reason why a CFTC spot crypto regulatory bill in the Senate Agriculture Committee would amend the Bank Secrecy Act, a totally separate framework. And I think, you know, just to, to go back to the point you made, the concept here does not originate from SAM. In fact, this wasn't the first bill that did something similar. The first bill was the Digital Commodity Exchange Act, the DCEA, which came out of the House Agriculture Committee years ago. And the DCEA, I think it's fair to say, is, is a significantly better bill. And many of the distinctions between the DCEA and the DCCPA, we are now sort of coming to realize, are differences that would have given FTX an extraordinary mm. advantage over its competitors. And I think that's the reason we need to really well, step back and can, rethink, is this the right approach? Why would it, can you just explain the second order implications of the, it being extended to DeFi? Like, like what, what, what would the impact on Uniswap have been or on Aave, for example? Yeah, so one of the digital commodity platform types in the bill is called a trading facility. And the definition is, is extremely broad. It basically says a trading facility is a group of persons who maintain a system in which uh, trades of digital commodities can be executed, period. And there's a little bit more nuance to that, but not much. And so you could, in theory, interpret that to say all of the liquidity providers using the Uniswap protocol are a group of persons responsible for offering a trading facility. Therefore, those liquidity providers have to go register with the CFTC and then comply with all of the requirements set forth in the bill. The problem is one of the requirements set forth in the bill for trading facilities is a requirement to operate a centralized market, period. And in, in a more recent draft that we saw, there was a requirement to operate a central limit order book, meaning AMMs would be totally illegal under the bill. So there's just no way that a protocol, mm. you know, users of, of Uniswap would be able to comply. Now, our argument, of course, would be liquidity providers are not a group of persons who should be regulated in the sense of an ordinary exchange like a Coinbase or a Kraken or, you know, Gemini, who clearly are trading facilities under this definition. And I think they're the ones who are the proper targets of regulation. They're the ones that frankly want to be regulated. The challenge is the CFTC has taken a view recently in an enforcement action against UkiDAO that any group of people who are acting in any way in concert in, in relation to DeFi are an unincorporated association that are a proper target of regulation. So that's why this became such a big issue for DeFi, among other reasons. Huh. Uh, did you guys listen to the Sam Eric podcast on Bankless maybe two weeks ago? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I listened to that and I think a lot of our circle probably listened to that and said, wow, Eric, brilliant, eloquent, so Eric dominated the conversation. 
the folks in DC that I know said Eric, uh, excuse me, said that Sam unequivocally won the debate where it matters, which is in the DC circles. I'm curious if you two heard the same thing, which is that uh, folks on the Hill and folks in DC really like Sam's take on this. I'm, cu- I'm curious what the reaction in DC was to that podcast. I think it depends on who you talk to. Yeah. Um, I think those that understand crypto were on team Eric and those who, you know, want to expand their power. <laughs> we're probably on team Sam. Yeah. I guess I, I guess I asked the question because I'm just wondering if this, uh, I think one dynamic to watch for, I think it was someone on your at blockchain association, Ron might be his name. Yeah. I think he, tw- um, he tweeted, uh, I think he tweeted out like the DCCP is, he said one dynamic to watch for, maybe this was Jake who tweeted it, but one dynamic to watch for is that the DCCPA might be largely, largely viewed as the FTX bill on the Hill um, or, or that it's already viewed as the FTX bill. So if I'm just putting myself, myself in the shoes of a politician here, like there's no way I want to vote yes on the FTX, on, on the proverbial FTX bill. Yeah, that was yeah, that was Ron, our um, our yeah. government affairs director, and I, I think he's absolutely right about that. And I think there's going to be a lot of people in D.C. who are going to, you know, who maybe are on video shaking hands with Sam, and now they're going to say Sam Bankman, who never heard of him, right? I think that'll be yeah. sort of the, <laughs> the reaction, especially if you took money, right? Like if you if you're a member and you took SBF campaign contribution, yeah. which is a lot of people, if the DCCPA comes to a vote, there's no way you want to be seen voting for that and being like, oh, well, Sam was in my pocket, oh. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like Politico had a headline this morning that said crypto chaos comes to Washington and everybody's kind of like, oh, wait, I took money from him and I was supporting his bill and we want to do a bill, but not this bill. And, you know, everybody's kind of uh, like it. And and I think chaos is our friend right now. Like, let's let everybody kind of run around like a chicken with their head cut off trying to figure out what the heck happened, Um, because we just really just need to make it to 2023 for a fresh start, um, where we'll be able to have better conversations, but, but yeah, it goes back to it. He broke, you know, he had built up a lot of trust and, and obviously, you know, violated that trust. And so I think, you know, I don't think we have to do much work to equate the DCCPA to, to Sam, the DCCPA is Sam's bill, but I do think we have some work to like, make sure that everybody knows that crypto is not FTX but an FTX isn't crypto, right? Like these are like, that was behavior and values that are fundamentally different than what the rest of us are trying to build with decentralization. And so that is a story that we need to push out, you know, through the media, through one-on-one meetings, through every channel possible um, in quarter, you know, between now through Q1 of next year, because I think we can get there. Um, It's just going to take a lot of work and a lot of conversations to distinguish the good players, which are most of the most of us working in this industry are the good guys, right? Versus what is very clearly a bad guy. Yeah, I want to move on to some other questions I had, but uh, any any other last points on the DCCPA that you think are important that we haven't covered? I think you got it all. No, cool. Uh, midterms, good or bad for crypto? You know, it almost doesn't matter, um, though. I think the ideal outcome is to have split a split Congress. So it looks like very clearly now that Democrats are taking the Senate. It looks like Republicans are likely to take the House. I think this is the most ideal outcome because it will force a very sort of balanced conversation um, on any legislation moving forward. Um, prior to Sam, I used to say it didn't only matter either way because we have champions on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, post Sam debacle, I think it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, I think, you know, I, I really want the Republicans to take the House and not the Democrats because, you know, I could see something moving quicker um, and more hastily if we have one party government um, as opposed to split government. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm actually a little bit more positive on it. I, I do think that where how it looks now does seem ideal for crypto. I think 
a divided Congress is good for us because crypto is a bipartisan issue. We don't want, you know, one party or the other running to the extremes um, in how they want to handle crypto. And I think having a divided Congress means if something gets done on crypto, it'll have to be bipartisan, which makes it more likely that it'll be, you know, reasonable and thoughtful and well considered. Um, I also think we saw a lot of new members elected to Congress who seem very constructive on crypto, right? Who have talked about it before, uh, who seem to understand what it is that we're trying to build here and are, you know, very um, uh, sort of constructive in their, in their views on crypto. I mean, that includes um, Senator, you know, soon to be Senator, Senator-elect Vance, um, Senator-elect Fetterman, um, uh, Mark Wayne Mullen. You know, there are a few people who I think we're going to add to our ranks who are going to be um, open to thoughtful consideration about how to regulate crypto. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. And it seems like all, I saw Ryan tweet out, Ryan Selkis tweet out, all 19 candidates that GMI PAC supported in the general election won their seats, including 16 open seats. That's 16 new voices you will expect, you can expect will be in, informed enough on crypto to craft policy that protects users and punishes fraud without stifling innovation. Really positive sign. Yeah. You know, listen, I think GMI PAC, you know, I think despite being supported by the FTX crowd, um, is actually has a pretty diverse funding base. And the team at GMI PAC has totally outperformed. They are really great. I think they've been incredibly thoughtful and that, yeah, we have a whole new, you know, slate of people showing up that, yeah, they might be a little bit junior in the house, but they're going to work their way up. And we've got, you know, Ted Budd coming to the Senate. We're super excited about that. And, you know, GMI PAC helped with that. So, you know, yeah. kudos to them. They've done a phenomenal job. Yeah. Um, it's fun. It, it was kind of crazy seeing all of this happen. Wow. There were other important things. There was a, uh, this library L L B R Y thing that just happened. I don't know if there, I, there are like a couple of tangential things that I wanted to discuss that aren't directly related to FTX. There's uh what's going on with ripple, um, right? Ripple mounted this defense against the sec grayscale suing the sec Coinbase is suing the sec. There's this kind of pattern of overreach from the sec into crypto companies right now. And I think, crypto companies are now pushing back, which is great to see. So I'd love to hear your guys' take on that. And I'd also love to hear you talk about- Yeah, I'll, I want Jake to okay. talk about that, but I want to make one point real quick is okay, that, cool. you know, federal agencies can't give any more guidance, right? If they could very clearly interpret how existing laws apply to crypto assets, they've done it. Where we're at now is sort of the stage where there's this push for legislation, which was happening before FTX, because there are some gaps for spot markets, stable coins, maybe a couple other issues. But the other kind of phase we're in is this litigation phase. And that's because two things are happening. One is agencies, we believe, are stepping too far and companies are willing to fight the good fight in court to to defend what we think is a, a bad interpretation of the law. And similarly with Grayscale and others, it's when the government is failing to act because they're treating crypto unfairly, they're also going on the on on the offense and and suing government. So so we have, you know, the next couple of years are going to be legislation and litigation are the, are, are, are the two games in town. But I'll, I'll let Jake kind of comment on the specifics of those cases. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I mean, that would have been um, probably the first thing I would have said, which is the SEC does not get to decide what the law is in terms of what assets are or are not securities. The SEC just gets to decide its own interpretation of the law. But no asset is a security or is not a security unless the issuer of the asset admits it's a security or a court of law decides based on litigation that it's a security. And that's where we are now. We're fighting out these different interpretations of the Howey test, right? This test that's used to determine whether and when an asset is a security subject to SEC jurisdiction. We're fighting that out in the courts. And there are a couple of fundamental disagreements between the industry and the SEC in terms of how broad the Howey test is. The SEC's view basically is to read every prong of the Howey test so broadly that it would capture basically every asset with a market price in the entire world. And our interpretation of the Howey test, which I think is the correct one, is it is meant to capture 
relationships between issuers of assets and the purchasers of those assets when there is a transaction between those two parties. And so, you know, what I think is frankly great to see, although it's sort of sad that this is where we are, um, it's great to see that there are uh, crypto companies willing to sort of fight this out and, you know, not roll over for the SEC just because they might get a lenient settlement, right? We need to get some clarity. And since the SEC refuses to give it to us, and since it seems like legislation that gives us that clarity is so far away, we have to fight this out in the courts. So the, the two cases you mentioned were, uh, you know, library and unfortunate decision from the court that I think was was wrongly decided that the uh, asset that they created, LBC, um, was a security. I think a couple of, of sort of um, uh, incorrect elements in that opinion. Um, and then, of course, the, the Ripple litigation, which is, is really the um, the main battlefront where, where this fight is being fought now. And so many industry participants, including us, showed up uh, to file amicus briefs. I was, was really proud of the brief that we filed explaining why we think the SEC's interpretation of the law is wrong. Um, but I think the sad thing here is it's just going to take years and years and years to get clarity through litigation, right? It could take decades for us to come up with reasonable, um, you know, uh, guidance basically from the courts that really should get done in legislation or in rulemaking or in guidance from the agency. But that's just sort of where we are now. Hmm. Can you explain the library? Uh, like what, what are the second order implications of this library decision? You know, I think um, there's not a whole lot, uh, in my opinion, that's new from library that we didn't see in earlier cases like Kick and Telegram. I think, look, the fatal flaw in the decision is the court misunderstanding the difference between primary sales and transactions in the secondary market. I don't think there's many people who would dispute that if you run a business and you sell a token and the token is totally non-functional and you say to your investors, don't worry, I will make the token go up in value based on the efforts that I'm going to carry out by building this network or, or what have you. That's an investment contract. It should be regulated that way. But the thing is, and, and this frankly comes from the SEC itself, from Bill Hinman in 2018, the director of the Division of Corporation Finance, who gave this now famous speech about this concept of sufficient decentralization, which basically said, an asset can start life as representing an investment contract. But then as time goes on, the facts and circumstances can change, right? This is all about facts and circumstances, can change such that the asset no longer represents an investment contract. And you know, in, in my view, and I think the, the broad consensus within the industry is when those assets are trading in the secondary market among people who have no relationship whatsoever to the original sale, right? That, that initial promise that was made by the issuer, uh, of profit based on their future efforts, it doesn't make any sense to say that that asset continues to represent a security. And the failing of the library decision was just not recognizing that distinction whatsoever, right? The court basically says, well, these tokens were sold as investment contracts initially, therefore they always represent investment contracts even when there are purchases of that asset that have nothing to do with an expectation of profit, right? And the court even says, we understand there were people in the secondary market and elsewhere who are buying this asset because they wanted to use it, not because they thought they were going to make profit, but we're just going to ignore that and say the asset is a security in every context. And that's just wrongly decided. Yeah. That does seem like the reasonable thing, by the way, is to have something that starts as a security potentially, and then can shift over time to a commodity. It seems it's, yeah. I mean, I, that's frankly, that is sort of the basis of the modern token distribution model. The industry yeah. has moved on from ICOs, right? No, no credible company is doing an ICO now. This is a concept called progressive decentralization. Um, it's, it's one that, you know, I'm on the side of my day job, I'm an advisor to Variant Fund, which is, you know, an early stage uh, investment fund in crypto. And it's something that Jesse Walden, the GP there, has, has written about and talked about a lot. That's how this is supposed to work. And, you know, we need the courts, unfortunately, to recognize that, given that the SEC doesn't. I think just one other flag is these cases that we've been seeing are all in the first or the second circuit. Um, there are, you know, different circuits within the country that have different case law. And the first and second circuits are where the SEC likes to bring its enforcement actions because the case law there is very favorable to the SEC. 
But if the SEC were to bring these cases in the Fifth Circuit, right, which is down in, in Texas, or the Eleventh Circuit, which is in Florida, I think those courts, the district courts in those circuits, would have very different views on the securities laws. And I think ultimately where this goes is we're going to end up with a circuit split, right? The First and Second Circuits will say the law yeah. is one way, the Fifth and the Eleventh, maybe also the Sixth, will say it's a different way. And then ultimately this goes up to the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will be the one that decides what the law of the land is. Again, it's just going to take us many years, maybe decades to get to that point and get that clarity. Well, the library, the library case does set a dangerous precedent, right? In that every crypto could be a security. That's, that's why folks have kind of riled against it so hard. Yeah, I think it, I think it is. I, you know, I think yeah. um, the law always comes down to the facts and circumstances. And, you know, with all due respect to, to the folks over at library, and I think, you know, hopefully they would admit this to at least in the early days, right, when they initially conducted the, the token sale, there were some facts that really don't look good for them, right? A lot of promises that they made about, um, you know, what was going to happen to the value of the token. And like I said, that is not what happens in in the modern uh you know industry that this is not something that um the large projects that you know right the the major DeFi players this is not something that they've done so yes i think it's it's a disappointing decision but i don't think that you can extend it to you know the the modern tokens that we've seen in recent years right that the industry has matured a lot yeah do you think that we get better clarity kristen i'd maybe throw this one to you do you like how what's the right question here how close are we to clarity on securities versus commodities is this does this just get dragged on for years and years here or? yeah i think it's a question that ultimately is going to be resolved by the courts i mean i think mm. it'll be interesting to see how the ripple case um comes out that you know is potentially one pathway for um getting getting some more certainty and clarity sooner um but you know we'll see but yeah th this, yeah. this is an issue that's going to continue uh, to be litigated. I, I don't see this getting solved via legislation in the short term. Can you explain the Ripple case? What's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll maybe let Jake do that. He's, yeah. uh, we did Jake, a great amicus brief in that case. Yeah, sure. So I, you know, uh, sort of similar to what I was describing before the SEC, um, you know, investigated Ripple for many years and eventually filed a complaint alleging that Ripple's sales of XRP were investment contracts because those sales came along with Ripple's promise to carry out future efforts that would make XRP go up in value. And, you know, I think, again, we can argue about whether the initial sales of XRP by Ripple are investment contracts. The, the problem in the case and the issue that, that we flagged and that, you know, Ripple itself argued and, and many others is this lack of a distinction between Ripple's initial sales of XRP versus transactions in the secondary markets. The SEC alleges in their complaint violations up through present day, even though Ripple had stopped selling XRP you know, sometime before then. And so again, the question becomes, is this just an issue for Ripple's early sales or is the entire secondary market for XRP uh, you know, in violation of the securities laws. This is not just an academic distinction. It's what led every major U.S. exchange to delist XRP the moment that the SEC filed its suit, right? If the SEC had only alleged violations uh, based on those primary sales, that wouldn't have happened. And that means that, you know, all the, the XRP holders wouldn't have, um, you know, been so adversely affected, right? The, there was a, a major price crash at the moment that the complaint was filed because of that delisting. And so that's just, you know, one of the, the many issues that we raised um, in our amicus brief. And then I guess, you know, the other point is, as I said, the SEC interprets the prongs of the Howey test in such a way that they apply in every single case. Right. So, so, you know, for example, the SEC will say you can have an investment of money, the first prong of the Howey test, even if there is nobody who actually invests any money in the project. Right. They say airdrops are an investment of money because of some sort of intangible expectation that the recipient of the airdrop will themselves contribute back some effort in order to increase the value of the network and that effort constitutes an investment of money. That is a concept completely made up by the SEC that no court has ever recognized and that I think makes absolutely no sense. If you actually look at the decision in the Howey case when it came out in the 1940s, right? What Howey says is the test is designed to apply 
to transactions where there is an issuer who seeks the use of the capital of others on the promise of profit, right? The use of the capital of others on the promise of profit. In other words, an ordinary business that is raising capital that they will put at risk in some enterprise that they're going to run. And there's, you know, similar issues with the SEC just sort of expanding its interpretation of these prongs in a way that it, it captures every asset with a market price. And that's what we've what we flagged. And hopefully the court will will recognize as a, an erroneous view on the part of the SEC. Nice. Anything we haven't talked about that you that you two feel is uh, really important here? I mean, my only Final thought, which I think I sort of said before is, but, but to drive it home is that there still is a pathway forward here in Washington. It's going to take a lot of work, but the good news is there are a lot of really good, smart, hardworking people on the ground here in DC that take this very seriously, that understand what it is that we're trying to build in this space and understand decentralization. And I think that, you know, as shitty as a position as we are in right now, it's, you know, it's not the end of the road. We will be able to move forward uh, and recover from from the damage that has been caused by by Sam and FTX. Yeah, yeah I think my if, if I had a parting message to, I guess, to leave on a more um, positive note, um, um, it's that I think as awful as this is, it actually reinforces why we're here and why we're doing what we're doing. And I, I put out a, a few thoughts yesterday, Jason, that you retweeted and said, got you fired up. And I'm, that was sort of my goal. And I got a few other messages like that too. And I, I do want to, um, you know, leave people optimistic and fired up about what we're doing. The financial system we are trying to build is a decentralized, disintermediated financial system. The purpose of which is to make sure that people cannot do what Sam Bankman Freed has done. That's what we're here for. And as sad as it is that in these early days of developing this new ecosystem, this new this new technology, that that someone like him was able to abuse the system, obviously that's regrettable and it's something we need to investigate and figure out how to stop. But the best way to stop it is not through regulation, it's not through policy, it's through code. That's what we're here for. And we need to recommit ourselves to the principles that brought us here, right? Recommit ourselves to decentralization and, and to building that future. And I, I guess I'll just say, I'm, I'm so proud uh, to work at the Blockchain Association with Kristen and with all of our fantastic members. You know, we have members like Kraken, for example, who are running these types of, of centralized custodial businesses, but they see the bigger picture, right? Jesse Powell understands the bigger picture. Right. We're here for more than than just you know making Kraken's bottom line look good. We're here for for you know building the future of finance, and I think we will do that. I have no doubt that we will do that. It's just going to be a rocky road, but but I'm I'm very confident yeah. uh, in in the future we're trying to build. I love that, Jake. I. You said decentralized and disintermediated. I would add one one more word there, which is just transparent, right? If you look at a lot of the large financial crises over time, uh, what's going on with FTX right now, uh, the mortgage uh, back crisis in, in 2008, 2009, um, a lot of these uh, big major economic blowups are, are caused by a lack of transparency in the system. And it feels like a good, as good of a time as ever for our entire industry to come together and start fighting for moving the entire financial system on chain, right? I think. I think we should all be, it's a good time to be on-chain maxis right now, um, whether it's proof of reserves with exchanges or uh, pushing more for the betterment of DeFi. I, I completely agree with you, Jake. So, yeah. Thank you guys. This was great. I, pre I appreciate yeah, no, you guys. Yeah, thanks uh, for having on. us. Yeah, I would also yeah. just give a big uh, plug for the Blockchain Association. You guys are doing, you have been doing great work for years and you, it's, uh, it's a really important time for crypto in Washington and you guys are fighting the good fight over there. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.